0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of the forum and minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. It has been said that nothing is simple, everything is simple which is to suggest that the world is a very complicated place. Life is a complicated business, and truth and justice are hard to discern, hard to come by. The other side of that coin is that often things need not be as complicated as we make them. That issues arriving and revolving around fairness and justice and compassion, reconciliation, integrity, are clarion, in that pursued with passion, many complexities can be sorted out and many human cries addressed. In broad gauge, that is what these Thursday Noon Town Hall forums, free and open to the public, are about. And the forums were never more about integrity and passion for justice invading issues allergic and resistant to change than today. For our speaker is one Shirley Chisholm. Ms. Chisholm was born in Brooklyn, spent some of her growing up years in the beautiful island of Barbados where her parents were born. She is a graduate of Brooklyn College. She was sworn in as a New York State Assemblywoman January 1965. She was elected to Congress from Brooklyn, the Bedford-Stuyvesant area, in 1968. She ran for president of these United States in 1972. She remained in Congress until 1982. Currently, she occupies the Purrington chair at Mount Holyoke College, which is a combination discipline. She she has a role in the political science department, the sociology department, the women's study department. During her 14 years as a congresswoman, she fought tenaciously for legislation that served the interests and needs of the poor, the young, women, black, and Hispanic people. Early in her career, she said, I realized that there were only two ways to achieve creative change for black people in this society, either politically or by open-armed revolution. Malcolm X later later said it very succinctly, the ballot or the bullet. Since I also believe that human life is valuable and important, I decided that for me it would have to be through the creative use of the ballot. The creative use of the ballot became her sword. During her campaign for Congress, her slogan was, Fighting Shirley Chisholm unbought and unbossed. And so I introduce to you, unbought and unbossed, Fighting Shirley Chisholm, speaking on civil and human rights in the U.S. and the Third World.
1: Thank you very, very much. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm glad I have the opportunity to share with you my thoughts and my ideas on the national and international aspects of civil and human rights today. If over the two centuries of our history as a nation, America has stood for any single concept, any overriding condition of mankind, it has stood for freedom. Freedom, that is the word. And That is the concept that has glowed in the minds and has been spoken in the languages of peoples all over the globe when they have thought of these United States of America. Our freedom has been the standard and the inspiration for freedom struggles ever since Jefferson Payne and Adams and Ben Franklin called for an end to monarchical tyranny over the colonists of a new world. But tragically, my friends, the elixir of freedom remains beyond the grasp of millions, even billions of the Earth's population yet thirsting for it. More tragically, right here in America, right here at home, there are individuals There are families, and there are entire groups of people who have yet to receive their full measure of freedom. And it is about these people here, and it is about those people abroad, such as the freedom fighters in Afghanistan and Namibia, the campesinos in Chile and Paraguay, The impoverished black and Hispanic and elderly and single parent families here in America that I wish to speak about today, because the struggle for civil rights is not yet won. The battle for human rights has stalled. And the struggle and this battle remains simmering somehow on our political agenda. And it is up to concerned and active citizens like all of us here in this room to once again move these issues onto the front burner. But we must go back again and again to our benchmark principle, freedom. To determine if our policies and our actions are advancing the cause of civil rights and human rights, here at home we must judge if cutting job training programs or compensatory education programs or college loan programs moves the people hurt by those deepening cuts closer to freedom or nearer to the bondage of poverty and ignorance. We must be able to judge if abandoning affirmative action plans and weakening fair housing plans and gutting school desegregation plans move certain children and certain adults closer to freedom or nearer to the barbed wire of isolation and despair in this nation. In our foreign policy, we must judge if sending our helicopters and our machine guns and our Marines brings third-world people closer to freedom in this life or simply nearer to the final freedom of the grave. We must judge if quiet diplomacy lifts the repression in South Africa and halts the death squads in El Salvador, or if this diplomacy is so quiet that no word of it is heard by the torturers and the murderers of these peoples in the third world. We must decide if freedom is to be the hollow promise heard in past years by millions of dark-skinned slaves in our southern states? Is it to be the empty rhetoric still heard by victims of discrimination and unemployment and repression? Or will it be a Moses, another Moses that comes along and leads all of us from the wilderness of bondage to the promised land of full equality, unsparing compassion, and unfettered opportunity. Let us look first at the status of our civil rights struggle during these milestone years, including 1984, the year that George Orwell wrote of so fearfully. But before looking directly at civil rights, is, is important to examine the status and the condition of the people supposed to be benefiting from civil rights enforcement. Basically, of course, we now know that the goal of the civil rights movement was to lift black Americans out of some poverty and away from racial discrimination. It is clear that the goal has not yet been attained and in fact, daily at this particular point in time, is becoming less attainable under this current administration. Our president initially desired and planned for the Civil Rights Commission to disappear when its authorization had expired. More and more, the old commission had become a sharp thorn in his side pointing to the severe and disproportionate damage this administration has wrecked on the minorities. And although our president was finally forced to accept a reauthorization for this commission, it now seems that his plan to destroy it was essentially a success. And the president's support for prayer in public schools and for tuition tax credits is a frontal attack, attack, regardless of how you look at it, on the First Amendment's insistence upon church-state separation. A 25% cut in financing for the Legal Services Corporation and the repeated efforts to kill all federally supported legal aid have made it far more difficult for the poor people to seek and to gain justice in our courts budget cutbacks for civil rights enforcement by several federal departments, and agencies also signal the administration's hostility to protecting and promoting our basic civil rights and liberties. Many persons might say, well, what do you expect Shirley Chisholm to say because she is a democratic politician? But as Al Smith used to always say, this is not Shirley Chisholm saying anything that is invalid or is an outright lie. I am saying to you, if we have the ability to do it objectively, let the record speak for itself. I could go on and on about this, but you may be as depressed, hearing about it as I am, to be talking about it. Instead, then, let us look for a few minutes at this administration's commitment to freedom and human rights beyond our borders. I wish that I could claim that the news, at least abroad, is better news. I wish you I could tell you that the dismal record on on civil rights at home is somehow balanced in some way by some sterling achievements on human rights abroad. I wish I could, but I cannot. A litany of failure is how this administration's human rights policy characterized by three prominent human rights organizations. the question. Those groups, America's Watch, Helsinki Watch, and the Lawyers Committee for International Human Rights, have issued a 106 page report. And they accuse our Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights, Elliot Abrams, of acting as an apologist for many nations that commit human rights abuses. The report asserts that political objectives rather than humanitarian concerns have guided this administration's policies. It states that this administration's laws, particularly the ones that require periodic reviews of human rights in countries, continue to receive our aid money. We have to keep in mind that our president had no real experience in foreign affairs when he came to the presidency. In a sense, one has to say that he had to get on-the-job training. But we should also be aware, and I'm very serious about this, because it's only recently that we came out on the side of Corazon Aquino in the Filipino struggle. We weren't going in that direction at all. It is only recently in a somewhat half-hearted, semi-reluctant manner that we have been able to say that the Haitian government did abuse its people in terms of human rights. The fact of the matter is in our country, we have had a selectivity in terms of whose human rights we are going to protect. We made sure that those countries that practice the communistic doctrine, that we would make sure that at every beck and call, we would speak out forcefully, unequivocally, and assertively in terms of these countries violating the human rights of human beings. We made sure we did that. On the other hand, if you were not a communist country, But if you were some type of fascistic, right-wing country, even though those countries were also violating the human rights of people, somehow we closed our eyes to what was happening to people in these countries, i.e. the Philippines, i.e. Nicaragua, i.e. Haiti. This selectivity of our human rights puts us in the position of a certain type of hypocrisy when we have said that human rights is the cornerstone of our foreign rights policy. That before we give any kind of aid to nations abroad, we would make sure that those nations are not violating the human rights of people. And whether the people come from communistic countries or right-wing countries, the fact is that if the rights of human beings are being violated, if we have an equitability of concerns on behalf of people who are suffering from abuses, we should take a very strong position and speak out assertively and at all times on the violation of the human rights of people. We have not done that. We should also be aware that this administration seems to see every international issue in the context of an East-West struggle. And this is why there's such a nonchalance about widespread rights abuses by anti-communist regimes in countries like El Salvador, Guatemala, Chile, South Africa, the Philippines, and South Korea. We don't need any more documentation or surveys or graphs on where human rights are being uh, uh, violated. We have ample documentation and surveys and reports on where these rights are being violated. And it is so sad to see why we can so freely support right-wing rebels fighting the Sandinista government in Nicaragua. If Nicaragua were arming and funding an army of rebels launching attacks out of our Catskill Mountains here, In the United States, it might be easier to understand or to accept the president's justification for actively backing the overthrow of a foreign government. As you have just heard, there is a lot that is difficult to accept and understand about this administration's actions on civil and human rights. Our president speaks of freedom, but his idea of freedom and his promotion of freedom does not include the disadvantaged and the downtrodden and the disenfranchised. Even worse, in the name of the defense of freedom, President Reagan pushes a massive military buildup and an intensity of ideological dispute with the Soviets that endangers the survival of every living thing on this planet called Earth. Certainly, the civil rights movement of the 60s gave some kind of impetus to the formalized human rights policy, which we began to use as the cornerstone of our foreign policy agreements with nations. Prior to the Jimmy Carter's administration, Human rights considerations were embodied in various foreign aid statutes, but little or nothing existed in the way of a formal human rights doctrine in United States foreign policy. And most of the law pertaining to human rights practices has only been developed since 1974, And these laws, which were the product of a very strong bipartisan effort in the United States Congress, sought to promote respect for human rights abroad. And they required that the United States military and economic aid, the support for loans by multinational banks, and the trade privileges should be given only to countries that comply with internationally recognized human rights standards, and most of these laws apply generally. A few are country specific, but they were enforced only on communist or leftist countries who violated human rights, and we were in bed with the rightist countries that violated human rights. Now in addition to these kind of legal mandates that we are supposed to follow, The Department of State's Bureau of Human Rights was charged with the responsibility of monitoring human rights considerations in other countries. In 1976, the Congress created the post of Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights in order to ensure that at least one high-level government official of the federal government would be charged with both the responsibility for implementing United States laws intended to promote human rights internationally and with the responsibility for serving as an advocate, an advocate now, of the international human rights within the Department of State. Now the creation of this stated human rights policy in the Carter administration finally brought the United States to center stage in the international arena. High-ranking United States diplomats voiced concern over human rights issues in all quarters. For example, the Assistant Secretary for African Affairs at that time challenged South Africa's apartheid system. At that time, United States Ambassador Andrew Young's visit to Haiti in 1978 resulted in the release of several political prisoners. And these examples are important because they were the first indications of a more even-handed policy towards non-communist governments that were violating uh, human rights. And while the Carter record was not unblemished as evidenced by its disparate treatment of Haitian refugees as compared to Cuban refugees, the announced human rights policy did give hope, did give hope, to many fledgling politicians and political movements around the world. Now, at the heart of the failure of the administration's human rights policy is its failure to adhere to the prescription it set out for itself in its 1981 memorandum. I think it is important for us to recognize that if our country is going to continue to utilize human rights as a cornerstone for our general foreign aid policy that we must no longer engage in fantastic rhetoric, but that we must have a commitment that shows a consistency in terms of what we believe, else we are bordering on the utterance of persistent and consistent hypocritical statements. The fact of the matter is I've had the opportunity to spend some time in South Africa. And indeed, if there is a country where there is a violation of human rights, it is that country called South Africa. And never did I believe in my wildest dreams that a country which constantly says that we believe in the rule of the majority. Well, who is the majority? In South Africa. We believe in the fact that people should have the opportunities to make determinations as to the kind of governments that they desire to have in their respective countries, because there is not one of us within range of my voice this afternoon, seated in this audience, that would have any nation coming here and telling us what kind of government we must have. The era of beneficent paternalism is over. We have got to recognize that third world countries and third world peoples have the right to make some determinations for themselves. And our responsibility is this, nothing more nor nothing less. The responsibility is that if we indeed are going to be given aid to many countries around this world, that we must have a definite kind of standard which will be applicable to all countries. If the countries violate human rights, whether they are black nations or white nations, they do not get our aid. If the countries violate some of the agreements that we make in terms of our foreign and trade agreements, we should not close our eyes to the fact that they are misusing American taxpayers' dollars. For quite some time in the Philippines, the dangerous signals had gone forth in this land that the taxpayers' dollars in America were not being utilized for the benefit of those poor masses in the Philippine Islands. Just imagine how ridiculous it looks to us rather recently when we saw pictures and stories in the newspapers declaring the thousands of pairs of shoes that Emilda Marcos has gathered, looking at the thousands of dresses that she has accumulated in the basement of Malcanine Palace in the Philippines. And here we were, giving foreign aid to these countries? Where was our... Where was our monitoring? Where was our demand for accountability? Do you want to tell me that we in this country did not recognize that the millions of dollars of the taxpayers' money in America going to countries like Haiti and the Philippines were being spent without our knowledge as to how it was being spent, while in this country as I travel around said country for the fifth time to see the farmers of this country The men of this country who put the meat and the fruit and the vegetables on our tables, those of us who live in the urban centers, men whom I call in a sense, the salt of the earth, men who down through the years, even though they were dissatisfied with some of our pronouncements and our actions from time to time, the farmers of this country, they were never militant like the women. There were never militants like black people. They swallowed everything. And they worked the land. And how unfortunate it is at this point in time that as we dispense and disperse millions of our dollars to these right-wing fascistic dictators that our farmers can't even get money to borrow
0: loans.
1: (laughs) You could never come back to this church and sit in this forum and be the same person you are if you had the opportunity to travel to places I have gone to during the past five months in the United States of America. To go into the Appalachian regions of the country, such as I did recently in Tennessee and West Virginia, and to see poor little white children Hardly able to stand on their two feet. Reasoned and sallowed beyond their years, they don't even look like human beings because their bodies are misformed and malformed and they're retarded in every phase of their development because they don't even get one glass of milk a day in the richest country on the face of this planet called Earth. And our dollars, all our dollars are being utilized abroad. And then come and go to the black deltas and the outer hinterlands of Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi and see little black children walking around with distended stomachs, suffering from all forms of malnutrition because they too are not eating correctly. And here we are, March 1986. Here we see how our dollars are being utilized. Here we see how our dollars are being misspent by countries that have violated the human rights of people. And we say we believe in democracy, and we believe in justice, and we believe in equity, The beautiful words come trippingly off our tongues. But where are our voices today? Back in the 1960s and the 1970s in this country, when we were deeply concerned about certain things, we were able to move beyond self. The American people in the 60s and the 70s upset and perturbed over certain facets of government did not sit down or sit back and whine and complain and talk to each other or got over the telephone and lament day in and day out. They recognized the old adage, God helps those who help themselves. And so in the 60s and the 70s in this country, you saw people people becoming involved in things beyond self. We saw the women's movement galvanizing itself to say that we, on the basis of our education and on the basis of our experiences, want to be able to make a productive contribution to this, our land, which is the United States of America, and not on the basis of our agenda. And we led our fight. We saw the civil rights movement where blacks said, we are sick and tired of see how far you've come, that we want our just share of the American pie. We saw what the environmentalists did. We saw what all of these people did. And you know what happened in the American society? There was a change that came about for women, for blacks, for the environmentalists, because the people used The constant pressure upon their elected officials to say all that was not right. And here we are, 1986, we are like rip-fang-winkled, fast asleep, fast asleep. I don't think some of us are cognizant of the fact that we are slumbering. Gains that have been made are being eroded. Our money is being misspent, and we don't say anything. We just sit and we just wait to see... And hope and pray that our own front individual doorsteps would not be touched, because we refuse to be our brother's keeper. That's all we wish for. And so long as we are living well, and we're doing quite well, and our own personal individual front doorsteps are not stepped upon, we're not going to worry about anybody else. That is the difference in the American of today, in the American of the 60s and the 70s. It's a selfishness that is so pervasive in America today that is very disturbing. Because nobody is saying anything. Nobody's reaching out a helping hand. Nobody's saying we need to mobilize to stop the issuance of foreign and tariff agreements that is enabling international monopolies now to take the thousands of jobs from the American people abroad. You travel in the northeastern part of the country and all you can see is the electronics plants are closing up. The textile industry is gone. Lynn, Massachusetts, which is the heart of our shoe industry, gone. Thousands of able-bodied men on any sunny day you go through this country standing around and you look in their faces and in their eyes and you recognize that there's a sense of hopelessness. And it has to do with our policies of transporting all of our jobs to labor in other countries that can be exploited. Where things can be done more cheaply. And we sit back like complacent armchair recipients (laughs) while all of this is happening to us. And when we finally awaken, it is going to be too late. The civil rights in this country, the civil rights movement, the human rights movement were very, very instrumental in recognizing and bringing forth certain segments of the American population that, heretofore did not have equitability of opportunities across the board. We saw a concept called affirmative action, which will probably be going out in another few weeks permanently. Why did we have to deal with affirmative action in a democratic, representative form of government? Why do we have to deal with artificial mechanisms, like quotas, 10% set-aside, affirmative action, all of these instrumentalities that conjure up in people the worst kinds of emotionalisms? We dealt with those instrumentalities because those who were in public policy making authoritative positions in our government did not see fit to give women and blacks and hispanics and other people the same kind of civil rights and human rights concern across the board so we had to resort to these mechanisms and now here within a period of 15 to 20 years where it took us to bring these things from the back of the burner to the front of the burner The erosion of these gains are taking place. The EEOC is going out. Affirmative action being eliminated. Civil rights agencies getting less and less money to do an effective and relevant job. And we are not doing anything about what is happening to all of the time and the effort that women and blacks in this country put into 20 years of hard work when many of us went to jail, and many of us were beaten in the South, and many of us went through so much in order to make sure that the words, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing, would become a reality. And we have been able, during the past 15 or 20 years, to make some fantastic progress in this nation. But now, retrogression, my friends, women of this nation, it is up to you to bring the moral principles upward and to stand up and be counted Remember all of the great women that went before us. Susan B. Anthony, whom they laughed at for 50 years. But she was the woman that helped us to get the ballot. And we looked at Rosa Parks, a little black woman in 1955 who refused to give up her seat in the bus. And it was she that brought about the Civil Rights Movement, which projected a man called Dr. Martin Luther King into prominence. So my sisters, don't feel lonely. Don't feel that you can't do anything because it will not be noticed. It was one woman. It was one woman who helped to bring about the Civil Rights Movement. It was one woman in terms of her undying courage and commitment with her black shawl around her shoulder, putting her feet in hot water, traveling across this country to say women have a right to exercise the franchise. It was one man, the great Mahatma Gandhi, that freed India. Where are the profiles and courage in America in 1986? Are we just all sitting back, waiting until the great doomsday will envelop all of us because Of this fear that we have of the potential nuclear holocaust and we're just waiting until it comes and we're not exercising we're not exercising our basic rights in this democratic form of government to let our government know that all is not well the time has come the time has come when we In this room, particularly those of us who have been in the struggle, fighting, and moving for over fifteen years, we in this room can no longer be the passive, complacent, armchair recipients of whatever the politics or the morals of this nation may decree for us as a people in this nation. We must forget conventionalisms. We must forget tradition, when tradition is no longer the answer to the problems that we are grappling with. Pay no attention to the doomsday criers around you. The doomsday criers don't make any contributions to the advancement of humanity. All they do is criticize morning, noon, and night. When you're not doing anything, nobody pays you any attention anyhow, so do something. (laughs) Stand up and be counted and as you stand up to be counted a wonderful thing happens this happened to me in my 26 years out here when you stand up to be counted and you look only to God whoever your God is and to your conscience for approval you will be able to carry on in conclusion I want to say to you that with God's help So long as I have my mental, emotional, physical, and psychological thing together, I will continue to fight the good fight. I will continue to speak out because we, as adults in this nation, have a responsibility to bequeath a legacy to future generations to come. Thank you.
0: A newspaper reporter commented when our guest Shirley Chisholm was running for Congress in '68, to this effect, when she mounts a platform, something happens. She appears taller than she is, and her voice is commanding. Well, she's no longer running for Congress. I think she's running for the human race, and we salute her. Let me just quickly break in and remind our radio audience that uh, you have been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. And our very distinguished speaker has been Shirley Chisholm, speaking forcefully on the issue of civil and human rights in the U.S. and the Third World. We wish to pause a moment to thank our co-sponsors for today's program the Mount Holyoke Alumni Association of Minnesota, and the Baker Foundation, which foundation is funding today's program. Well, we, we give you a chance now to pass to the aisles your questions, which will be brought forward and sorted by our special friends. And while that's happening, and while those of you who must leave do so, I'll quickly ask our guests to return to the pulpit and begin uh, throwing a few questions to you that we've already brought together. What human rights advocacy groups are doing a good job? Amnesty International, Bread for the World, any, any guidance in groups that you think are being effective at this time?
1: You have the American Civil Liberties Union that is really doing an effective job. You have a number of groups uh, in different parts of the country, perhaps, that do not have, uh, have not been able to get um, national recognition, but they're doing a great deal, perhaps, uh, on. Not perhaps, but they're doing a great deal on behalf of children. Our children are very beleaguered in America today, and so we have a number of local Mm. groups that are doing a great deal on behalf of children.
0: Just before we uh, walked in here this morning, you uh, mentioned your friendship with Hubert Humphrey. Perhaps you'd like to say a word about Hubert and your tie with him.
1: Just for the moment, I became a little bit emotional. Because um, Hubert Humphrey was a mentor of mine. I remember when I started out in politics some 20-something years ago, and I was attempting to uh, raise money because it was so hard for me to get money because I was a relative newcomer supplemented by the fact that I was already um, cast aside in terms of being an independent-minded woman, and people wouldn't give money easily Mm -hmm. to an independent politician. Mm -hmm. And I remembered writing to about 30 different white male politicians in this country who had seen me at debates and had said I had a brilliant future before me. And I remember writing to them, asking them to please come and uh, be a speaker so I can raise some funds. The only person that responded on two occasions was Hubert Humphrey. Hmm. Hmm. Hubert Humphrey had a wonderful impact on my life. When he died, I, I couldn't go. I had seen him a few days before he had passed on, and he had indicated to me, you know, that chipper style that he had, he had indicated to me, Shirley, don't let them get you down, you know, and uh, He was only at that time about 80 pounds and we hugged each other and I said, how can I I let them get me down when you the old warrior helped to encourage me to come out here? I have very fond memories Hmm. of Hubert Humphrey. Thank you.
0: If I could pose this, break in on Mm -hmm. a moving moment. You have visited hundreds of college campuses and you're now resident of a college campus. Would you care to comment on the current student climate, what you're finding in student circles uh, today?
1: I don't want to be too critical about the students today because I think they are victims of a kind of environment today in which the anxieties and the insecurities that many of them are experiencing causes them not to become involved in problems beyond their own survival and their own concerns. In the 60s, things were a little bit better. The economy was not like it was today, and people seem to have had enough creative energy to do things beyond self. Today the students on the college campuses will tell you very quickly, I have to really try to concentrate on my studies. I want to graduate and I want to be able to get a job, and also the college students today are not from the sixties. They don't have the kind of perspective and background to understand what really took place in the sixties. And so it's very difficult for them to understand why we older folks who came out of the sixties continue to work so hard and continue to be so involved. And the only thing I constantly tell college students, nothing that you have is ever permanent, that you've got to continue in the struggle. You've got to make a commitment. Now some of them are beginning to feel it and they're becoming reactivated. The last few months. I know college campuses becoming alive, you know, because their own front doorsteps have been touched. They're not going to be able to get the student loans, all right? They're not going to be able to live the way they had been living. So consequently, it's like everything else, human nature being what it is, when you are hurt or when something touches you, then you begin to become involved. So they're just beginning now mm-hmm. to become reactivated.
0: Mm-hmm. Good. Yes.
1: Thank you. Mm
0: -hmm. this question from the audience to the elementary school students who are here with many years ahead to bring change in their world they're sitting over here what direction would you give Mm
1: -hmm. to the beautiful young students that are here I want you to listen to me very well Mm -hmm. it's very very important first of all that you get your education Get a good education. Because the world today has no room left for unskilled men or unskilled women. So in order for you to be able to compete in this highly technological, industrial, and developing society, you've got to have the requisite kinds of skills. Secondly, when you get older, you must commit yourself to being of service in some way to your community. Whether you will give one hour a week, two hours a week, or whatever, learn to go beyond self To help others. If you do those two things, I will feel very happy and you're on the way to becoming a productive citizen and you become an adult in the United States of America.
0: Another question from the audience. When you talk about human rights, is there one key human right that is a core right, the heart of all rights?
1: Well, I think the. The basic uh, human right, in a sense, uh, is the ability to have the right to exist, Mm -hmm. to live. Everything else flows from that. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you. I read this in a biography uh, of your life, when a preacher gets involved in politics, he becomes just another politician. <laughs> <laughs> you remember saying that? <laughs> would you care to comment? Oh, at I all? would love
1: to comment. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I, when I say that, I'm talking about it from the broadest, the broadest sense of the word. <laughs> because I learned one thing. I learned in my years in the church that there there actually is more politics that goes on in the churches than (laughs) in the political arena. Uh, And in a sense, a a minister is a kind of a politician. I'm not going to go into that because that's not my lecture today. But if you think about it very seriously, a minister is a kind of politician. He's a politician of the gospel. That's all I'm going to say.
0: (laughs) Would you care to comment about Malcolm X? I I quoted uh, Mm -hmm. a reference that you made to him.
1: Uh, Sure. I'd be very glad to comment about Malcolm X because I knew Malcolm very well. Mm -hmm. Malcolm X uh, is the person who coined the phrase of the ballot Mm -hmm. or the bullet. Mm -hmm. Malcolm X, like so many other persons, was misunderstood in his time. There's so many persons that emerged, both black and white, people that have made contributions that are misunderstood in their time, but it's only after death has claimed them, that people then begin to look back and to understand what Malcolm was attempting to do at that time. And because Malcolm was a very outspoken, assertive, uncompromising kind of man with injustice and with racism, he rubbed those who were in authoritative positions the wrong way in this society. Years later, it's interesting to see some of those same persons who had labeled him just a plain out-and-out radical, had the courage and the guts to say, now, some 15, 20 years later, now, we understand what he was trying to do. But that is is, uh, applicable to many, many people who are always misunderstood in their time, and for people who are afraid of persons who dare to have the audacity to speak out and to speak up. The most convenient thing to do with people like that, give them a name and hope that the name would catch on to the rest of the populace, you wouldn't have to worry about them.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did Geraldine Ferraro help or hurt women who hoped to be elected to public office?
1: Well, you can answer that question from two points. First of all, Geraldine Ferraro was a person that opened the door in terms of being selected by her party, the Democratic Party, to be the vice presidential candidate. From that, from that standpoint, Geraldine Ferrara uh, helped to inspire and to encourage other women for the future. But what happened in the campaign was that Geraldine Ferrara did not go over well in the South at all. I campaigned in the South for the ticket. And it was amazing how many, many women in the South did not support her, and it was three things struck me that I never thought I would see. I remember when I went into Louisiana, for example, the women there, the white women in Louisiana said to me over and over, Shirley Trisham, don't come in here to promote our ticket because Geraldine Ferraro betrayed the Catholic Church. That was the way they put it. They didn't say she had a right to her own opinion, she betrayed her Catholic Church. Then I went into the hills of Tennessee and Western Kentucky many of these places and there's no such thing as feminists in many parts of this country, you better believe it. And one of them, uh, a couple of them said, Geraldine Ferraro bothers me, not because she not bright and she couldn't learn, she doesn't have the competency to eventually uh, be vice president, or even if need be president. But this woman said to me, and this thing struck me, she said, well, you know, nowadays our presidents get, uh, they may be assassinated or murdered, you know, life is so rough holding political office. And if President Mondale was assassinated, if something that happened to him had he been elected, what would we call her? Vice-President Ferraro? This is just the way they said it, or Vice-President Zaccaro. You don't want a feminist for president. That's, no. I'm telling you what, I'm, I was out there, you don't know, I was out there, and I was amazed. And then in one place I got into a little confrontation with some people another state South, because the people said, we don't want any Yankees. And I had to say, I didn't know we were still fighting the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So, it's sort going of to take a long time in this country before gentlemen and a large number of women recognize that they're stupid men, they're stupid women, they're brilliant men and brilliant women. And if those men and or women have the capacity to lead, have the attributes, have the knowledge, that that should be the... Only thing that should be considered. It's going to take a while, but no doubt about it. We've come, we've come quite a ways, however.
0: In two minutes or less, could you tell us why you ran for president and might you do it again? <laughs>
1: I ran for president because people in several states said to me, Shirley, we've been watching you, we've been observing you, and you, you, you have, you have, you, you're so fearless, you're so articulate, you have a sense of humor, you're a leader, and we need to begin get people moving and thinking in other directions in this country, that someday a woman or a black person can be president. We know it's only very difficult for you to become president. We still have to do a lot with racism and sexism in this country, but begin to create the atmosphere that will be conducive to people thinking in that direction. So I ran, and I want to say publicly again, I do have a special love for Minnesota. Again, Minnesota and Florida were the two states that got me off on this presidential campaign. Because the people in Minnesota those two states, Minnesota and Florida, were the two states that raised the first $10,000 each to say, Chisholm, we want you to run in our caucuses, our primaries, you must do it. And that was when I got frightened with because I got frightened because they would call my bluff. Because i had tell them, you can't run on the basis of moral encouragement. You've got to put your money where your mouth is. And you know, they did put their money where their mouths were, and I had to run. <laughs> and I did. I don't regret it one bit. It was a marvelous experience. Mm. Now will I run again? No. I achieved. Mm-hmm. I achieved what I set out to achieve in 1971, 1972, to be able, with God's help, to go all the way to the end. Every time somebody dropped out, Muskie Mills, and everybody dropped out the newspaper, men would call me, well, Chisholm, I said, stop bothering me because I am not running for the presidency in the same way these gentlemen are running. I am not dropping out. I am going to the end, and they didn't believe I did. I went to the end because if I was trying to prove a point in terms of women or blacks or other people running for president, it was important that I go to the end so that the doomsday cries wouldn't have to cluck their tongues and say, what did I tell you? They drop out along the way. They can't make it. So I made it and I went to the end. Now I'm, now I'm going to be 62 years of age in excellent health, can do everything that a 25-year-old can do, but I don't <laughs> intend personally to run for office again. People have plans for me, but in terms of my own personal agenda, I don't. I'm moving into television work in another few months. I'm moving into documentaries. I'm doing a lot of writing. So this is for me the last career, and then I will hopefully steal away softly in the silence of the night.
0: Allow me to quote something that you said January 25, 1972. I am the candidate of black America. I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I am equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or special interests. I am the candidate of the people, and you have spoken for the people. The people here today rejoice as the entire audience that you've been with us today.
1: Thank you. you.